Welcome to Rare Book School and what I believe is the 437th Rare Book School lecture. I've uh, lost count of which lie I give on these occasions at this point. <laughs> Something like that in any event, a lot. But our lecture this evening is uh, particularly distinguished and has come a particularly long way to give it. Jan Storm van Leeuwen from the uh, Royal Library of the Netherlands. It's a great pleasure to welcome him to Rare Book School. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great pleasure for me and an honor to be here and to give a lecture in the university that was conceived by Jefferson, who also built the first buildings. This lover of freedom, we are lovers of freedom in our country as well, knew very well that knowledge is important for man, and therefore he founded a book collection also which unluckily was destroyed. So we cannot know what bindings he had made around those books, although we can guess. For Jefferson still lived in the time when most books a collector bought were bound individually by his orders and not by the publisher. Those bindings the publisher had made in larger quantities, in paper or cloth, usually were not commissioned, uh, were not considered definite, and, if present, were supplanted by the collectors by a definite one in leather. My lecture is about these definite bindings that reflect not only the binder who made them, but also the collector for whom they were made. Just imagine a dreary day in 1988. I had to finish a job. I had to finish a job and had retired to our sister institution, the Museum Mermano Westrenianum, almost unpronounceable for anyone but us <laughs> in The Hague. After having told everyone that I was absolutely not to be disturbed. Therefore, I was quite annoyed when my colleague Anne Korteweg, specialist of medieval manuscripts, phoned and said that I just had to see the antiquarian book dealer Nico Israel because he had something of great interest to show. Now Nico is a good friend and welcome at any time, but not just then. I sweared below my voice and told him to come. <laughs> when Nico arrived, he took out of his dirty raincoat, the pocket of his dirty raincoat, an even dirtier old envelope, from which he took something which immediately took away my breath and made me glad indeed that my colleague had insisted on the visit. I saw something very rare, a textile chemise binding. Now the high quality of the manuscript, and now it starts to get interesting. <laughs> and then, there. And now I must put the light on also. Oh, it doesn't work, Vincent. Oh. It worked when we controlled it one half hour ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, there we are. Thank you. Now, the high quality of the manuscript, a book of hours, made around 1460 in Valencia, Spain, and beautifully illuminated by the painter Juan Marie, would be sufficient reason for many institutions for acquisition. The opening with the Annunciation is shown here, but not so for us, because prices being what they are, we have to concentrate on Dutch manuscripts, and even that is sufficiently difficult, I can tell you. 
The chemise, however, was reason enough. A full leather binding covered for the second time in red velvet, which protrudes over the edges and is decorated around the textile edges with braid of silver thread and tassels. Amongst the book bindings of former times, one can difficultly find a greater rarity than the textile chemise binding shown here. Therefore, Walter's Art Gallery in Baltimore can be very proud with their two examples. And I feel lucky to have found the funds for buying this interesting piece. It costs enormously much, of course. There are six or seven extant examples. When the famous German binding specialist Hans Lugier discussed the phenomenon for the first time in 1917, he knew of only one original, and now some six or seven are totally known. Because of lack of originals, Lobier concentrated on depictions, many to be found on paintings made between Kirchhoff 1425 and Kirchhoff 1525, out of which he knew 26. Nowadays, a search for depictions of the type of binding is far easier because of the many existing nicely illustrated standard works on painting from the said period. Yet, it can be quite difficult to make a distinction between chemise bindings, their sister type with a secondary leather covering, for which I would reserve the German time term Hülleneinband, and the type with long protrusion on one side called girdle binding, which I will discuss later on especially when the illustration is in black and white. Nor is it always easy to make a distinction between a chemise binding and books lying on cloth or a cushion. Bearing that in mind, a first search revealed some 200 depictions, mainly paintings, miniatures, a few drawings and engravings, and I couldn't trust those in sculpture. Almost four-fifths come from the Netherlands, four-fifths and three-quarters from the south of the Netherlands. Nowadays Flanders and part of Belgium. I hope where you, you know where it is. And the rest from the north, the country I come from, which of course you know. As an example, I show you a detail of the famous Lamb of God altarpiece by Jan van Eyck where the Holy Virgin is reading in a book covered by a chemise binding. The few German and Spanish depictions of chemise bindings mainly come from regions under Flemish influence. There are some French examples, while a 1996 study by Frederick Berman, then conservator at Walters Art Gallery, brought up the total of English examples to some 20. Although I know that Berman doesn't agree fully with me, but he isn't here. The examples of which I have these detailed illustrations show the chemise binding to have figured above all in the hands of female saints, like Saint Barbara, Saint Catherine, and female donors of painters, uh, paintings, and, of course, the Madonna. In these cases, the painter wanted us to recognize the books in which these persons are reading as religious ones possibly books of hours. Well, actually, I'm almost convinced they are usually book of hours, although it's difficult to prove. The overlapping parts sometimes are short and sometimes are broad, like in the Van Eyck example. In this case, it is likely that he intentionally stressed the broadness of the overlapping parts in order to make it quite clear that he depicted a chemise binding and nothing else. We see that more often with Van Eyck that he stressed the construction of the object in order to make it obvious for everyone. Whilst the depictions make us think that the type of binding was mainly made in the Netherlands, the originals, the few originals, seem to tell us a totally different tale. Two of them are certainly English, and one possibly is. Two are Spanish, amongst ours. One is French and one Italian. Three of them contain books of hours. The one in the Royal Library from Kirchhoff 1460 is probably the eldest. 
the others dating from 1475 to 1558 or slightly later. And from that period, we, I, at least I don't know any il uh, illustration at all. Moreover, our chemise binding is the only one to represent the type that, according to the depictions, was the most popular, with flaps around equally broad and on a religious work. So, thanks to the depictions, it is known that the chemise binding must have been particularly popular in the Netherlands. That's why I bought it in the end. That's why I had reason to buy it. There are librarians in between, I hear. Although no original is known to exist. Whereas they would be the po uh, possession of nobles in other countries, with us they would be owned by rich burghers. My comparison of a live chemise binding and a painted one is not meant to show you something beautiful, some beautiful pieces, but should demonstrate how our scarce knowledge of old binding types can be supplemented by other material-like depictions. On the other hand, my example shows that the knowledge of bindings can supply extra information for the painting. For Van Eyck's Madonna, woman among women, had to be surrounded by the most beautiful objects the painter just could think of, including the most precious manuscript the painter knew, a book of hours, it seems to me, in a chemise binding. In 1434, Canon van der Pale donated a chapel to a church in Bruges in Belgium and had a missal made, a chalice and the like. A little later, he also donated a requiarium and founded another chapel in 1443. He was a religious person, you see that, and also he had money. Around the same time, this man ordered an altarpiece with the same Jan van Eyck. In his Van der Pala altarpiece, the donor of the painting, Canon Van der Pala, is to be seen in piety, kneeling before the Virgin Mary. In his hands, he holds a small booklet, immediately recognizable as a girdle book to the connoisseurs, bound in suede. It looks very much like the girdle book kept in Göteborg Art Museum, of which I only have a black and white illustration. But the overhanging parts with Van Eyck are larger. Again, they are, I think, exaggerated by the painter because he didn't want there to be any uncertainty about what he depicted. Now again, only few girdle bindings are preserved, not more than 14 or 15 of which several small and latter ones contain religious texts. Another example is to be found in the Museum Mermano, difficult name already mentioned. Also, this type is far better known because of many works of art from the Middle Ages and early Renaissance in which it is depicted. There are hundreds of them. Thus it is known that they often were carried by pilgrims who could take them along on their pilgrimage. They would hang upside down, like you see it here, from their girdle with a protrusion of leather at the tail, like Van Eyck painted it, in order to be used at any time while still hanging. So it would hang and he could take it up and read while walking. Van der Paale must have been aware of this, of course. Thus, the girdle binding tells those with a special knowledge that van der Paale wanted to show himself not only as a devout canon, who donated a chapel and everything belonging to it, but also as a pilgrim. Old, sickly and rich, he may have come to see life as a permanent pilgrimage towards Christ and the Virgin Mary, and may have wanted to make it clear in Van Eyck's painting, which originally served as an epitaph to himself in his own chapel. Why are so few original chemise and girdle bindings left if there must have been quite some in existence? An answer is that books in the 15th century would still be kept while lying down on a table, a lectern or a shelf, as is shown in this lovely French miniature in our collection. People wouldn't possess many, 
The habit of shelving books changed in the 16th century, whereby a standing position became the prevalent one. What would be more logical for a 16th century owner to detach the half-disintegrated second textile covering in order to make the standing position possible? This would explain in the meantime why the chemise binding disappeared as a type at the same time. When libraries grew larger, the books at first were not placed with the spines towards the beholder, but with the foredge, which then could be titled. In many libraries in our country, the books maintained this position until well into the 17th century. Prints from that time show two transverse bands, which are often held to represent the raised cords on the spine, but of course the engravers would know very well that they were clasps and we can see that too. The books didn't have two raised cords, but four or five at that time, or even six. In the more or less public libraries of the 16th century, the spines were turned then towards the thick walls and were susceptible to, for instance, damp, and therefore a second covering of suede was added to it, helped by strips of brass along the fold, like with this binding probably made... My goodness, what did I do? Oh, sorry. Yeah. There you are. Thank you. Uh, this binding probably made in Alkmaar in the second half of the 16th century. When in the course of the 17th century the libraries were turned round, the book started to show the spine. The spine titling became customary. But not all collections changed at the same time in every country. It's like throwing a stone in the water till the circles come far away. There's a lot of time. Some were kept in the old manner until well into the 18th century. As Wilman Spawn has shown, the books of Isaac Norris II, a wealthy Philadelphia merchant, were changed from titles lettered in ink on the foredge two titles lettered on the spines in 1764, as late as that. But it can even be later, But for I'm being told that in the um, uh, famous uh, library in Madrid, the uh, books still are figuring with the forage towards the beholder. But back to the 17th century, the time of the Dutch painter Frans Hals, next in fame only to Rembrandt. Hals confined himself, unlike Rembrandt, to the painting of portraits. He was a sharp observer, and his works seemed to give a true reflection of what his sitters looked like. He didn't depict with a love of detail objects close by seemed painted with fluent strokes, not paying attention to any detail, but farther away they clearly show the components they are built of. Let us take as an example the portrait of Marit Gevoogd Klaasdochter in the Amsterdam Rijksmuseum painted in 1639 when she was 62 years old. Then that was very old. Now it is young. <laughs> she wears the clothes we would more or less expect of a lady of her age. In many shades of black, she was a member of the Dutch Reformed Church. But pretty luxurious and expensive, according to her husband's status. He was Peter Jacobs Olikon, Burgomaster of Haarlem and member of the Dutch State General. The book in her hands shows Hals's eye for the construction of objects. It is generally described as a Bible and shows a gilt forage. I hope you can see it, otherwise you have to believe me, gauffered in a diaper pattern and it is a black binding with what, with what was called silverwork in Holland at the time. We can clearly discern the almost square corner pieces mounted over the edges of the boards and the centerpiece in the form of a coat of arms. Of both silver clasps, the catches start broad at the end and taper towards a point at the other end, while the hooks have an oval in the middle. A clasp to which the chain was to be attached can be seen at the top of the binding. 
The chain itself, however, which uh, is not to be seen, another clasp would be at the other cover, of course. I think that Hals didn't want to draw the attention of the observer too much away from the stern face of this old lady. The binding was by no means an invention of Halsey's. Several of these pieces are known in the same format and made of a very strong black leather with a marked structure. It is usually called shark skin, but cannot come from a fish. Because it shows the implant of hair and must come from a mammal. Bindings with flat silver clasps and corner pieces with engraved decoration as in Marathub's portrait date above from the 20s of the 17th century. They cover what was called church books, octavo editions of the Bible with the psalms and the musical notation and sometimes hymns. A binding that can be called the twin of the one depicted by Hals is in the Royal Library. I asked our photographer to place it in almost the same position. According to an inscription on the clasps, this piece originally belonged to a certain Janneke Jans, the man van Heemskerk. I tell you the name only to show you that I can pronounce my language. <laughs> I, I, I don't expect you to remember that. I haven't been able to make out whether the engraved coat of arms in the center is hers or her husband's. The book is a Dutch Bible edition of 1624 in combination with the Psalms. The end leaves show many in manuscript annotations concerning Janneke's family. The binding cannot be dated much later than the Bible. I think it was given Janetje by her husband at their wedding. The special use of these chained Bibles can be learned from an old Dutch children's song set to the tune of A vous direz je maman, for which Mozart composed 12 lovely variations. Probably you know what I mean now, but you will know it. It's known in almost any country with a different text. The song in Dutch, roughly translated, goes, Always short jacket is ill in the middle of the week, but not on Sundays. On Sunday she goes to church with her book full of silverware. I will not discuss the weekly business of this woman with a very short jacket who stayed in bed the whole week but concentrate on a devout church-going Sundays. She went with her book full of silverware which must mean clasps, center and corner pieces and a chain for carrying. In our mind's eye we can see them go to church, these women clothed in black and white with their expensive Bibles in black and white, to listen to the preach in black and white. While staying within the terms of sobriety of the Dutch Reformed Church, they could nonetheless display their wealth. Back to Hals. Marit Gevoogd was proud of her Bible. It may have been a gift from her husband in 1620, 1625, or even 1630. On the 25th, 35th anniversary of their marriage. It is unlikely that her binding was made long before or after that, and it is certainly impossible that it would have been a wedding present from her husband in 1595. You will realize that I speak of the painted binding as an object that actually existed, contrary to what we saw with the Virgin Mary. Indeed, I think Maritre to be depicted with a portrait of her Bible as a display of piety, a nice gesture towards her husband, who figured on the not-shown companion piece, and also as a show of the wealth of the family. Here the knowledge of what book and binding were, and what function they had, gives a further insight into the meaning of Halsey's beautiful portrait. Forgive me for staying a little longer with the master, with a small group of portraits he painted of clergymen. Most of the, these portraits are not preserved in original, but old copies that yet serve my purpose very well. 
these are accurate, sufficiently accurate to draw conclusions from the books in their hands, which are described in literature as Bibles, again, with Maratha we saw that it was correct. And they have all the same type of bindings. The sitters are caught as if in the act of reading. They have their book in an uplifted hand with their index finger in the volume as to mark the opening where they were reading just when the painter asked them to look at the birdie. <laughs> the largest portrait is that of Michael van Middelhoven, who was a preacher in Voorschoten, the place where I live, Kirka 370 years later. Although I can only show the portrait in black and white, the binding is clearly a parchment thong laced in binding with yap edges. I have never seen the original and am not certain about the color of the edges of the book block, but I assume it to be brick red, as is the case with the other portraits, like the one of Samuel Amsing from Kirka 1630. These portraits are, by the way, also known from engravings made within a short period after their completion. These engravings had the aim of furthering the name and fame of the sitters. So there are preachers with books in their hands and engravings made after these portraits in order to further their fame. Now the parchment thong laced in binding with or without yap edges and with ties is the one used preeminently in the United Provinces in the 17th century for scholarly books and definitely not for Bibles and Psalm or hymn books. There is a nice a reconstruction of the type here in the rare book collection made by Nicholas Pigwood. The example I show you here comes from the collection of the state general already mentioned and therefore is adorned with their arms, but for the rest it is exactly the same type of, type of binding. So obviously these four preachers didn't want to be portrayed as preachers but as scholars. Obviously, they wanted to be known thus not, along, uh, not only among family and friends, but also in a larger circle. But, contrary to the preacher from Middelhoven, his wife, Sarah Hessex, wanted to be depicted as a devout person. She has the Bible of the type of Marit Gevogel in her hands, only with less silverwork, smaller and simpler. She doesn't press the book against her body, but holds it out towards the spectator, as if to stress the value of the Bible with psalms and songbooks. As indicated, the parchment binding, soon on thongs, laced through the covers and with a loose spine, was much in favor with scholars for their own library in the 17th century in Holland which doesn't mean that it was not, meant, uh, was not used for other purposes and other people. The reason can be easily understood. They were cheap. The supple and sturdy parchment could stand handling very well and yap edges and green silk ribbons protected them from insects and dust. As long as the scholar's study didn't become too dry and too hot, little chance in our moist country, these bindings could survive for a long time. The type was extensively used for small book formats up to small quarto, but less for large quarto and rarely for folio and larger. For the large formats, a technique was prefer preferred with tight back and raised cords, like you will find on calf and Morocco bindings than normal, and this type is sometimes called Dutch binding. The Dutch prize binding, given to the scholar to be, got the same techniques. Thus, the binding was laced through the thongs, was made for small size prize books, and remained to be made so until well into the 19th century, although it no longer existed for anything else. The type, as it were, froze in a certain function, and one can see that more often. These bindings were given away twice a year in the Latin schools in the Republic as an encouragement for diligence to the best pupil of each class. 
this man's portrait had to remain anonymous till a short time ago. The portrait in a private collection was painted by the Leiden painter Willem van Meeris in 1696. The man's clothes and wig show him to have been a scholar. His left hand hangs over a table with two books, while his right points in that direction. He wants us to look to them. Van Meeris was an adept of the detailed way of depicted, which is known by the good old English term of fine malerai. We can clearly see that both books were bound in gilt vellum with flat spine and ribbons at the foredge, the type just described. The uppermost binding in octavo is lying with the lower cover towards us. Two-thirds are visible. The ribbons are red and white. The edge is sprinkled red. The covers show a blind frame of lines, while the rest of the tooling is in gold. A small tool in the corners and a large block in the center. Now the combination of gold and blind tooling points immediately to Leiden as the place where the binding was made. But anyone familiar with the block doesn't need that hint. It represents the goddess Athene, belonged to the Leiden Latin school and was used from at least 1677 onwards to well into the 18th century. This example from around 1700 in our own collection is practically the same in all respects. You will observe that the color of the ties is reversed, but that doesn't matter at all, of course. With blind and gold tooling on the covers, red and white ribbons, and a red sprinkled edge. Red and white, by the way, are the colors of the Leiden coat of arms, and the town paid for its prize binding, so wanted it to be known. Our binding has two blind frames, and the painted one has only one, but this difference is not significant. I could also have shown you one of the same sort, but then without the ties, and I wanted the ties to be added, and my restorers didn't want to supplant the ties from one binding to the other one. <laughs> the decoration of the quarto binding underneath the octavo one in the portrait is less easily recognizable, but the one suffices. It can be excluded that the sitter himself wanted him to be portrayed thus because he was a proud prize winner in his youth. Dozens of fellow pupils will have done so during his time at the Latin school. He will have done so for another reason, because he was thus recognizable as the man who distributed the prizes, the rector of the school. The portrait, therefore, only can depict Dr. Lucas van Rijp, rector of the Leiden School from 1685 to 1760. From written sources, it afterwards appeared that Vermeeris ever did pay his, paint his portrait, but was unknown. Here the knowledge of the binding is essential for the identification of the portrait. Now when you think that I've been so intelligent, I have to disappoint you. This discovery was made by a compatriot of mine who especially studies prize bindings. Now I don't want you to think that every binding depicted in a portrait can tell us something about the person depicted. For one thing, this depends on the painter's intention towards his work, his wish whether or not to keep close to nature. Rembrandt's books, for instance, usually large folios, tell us little that is specific but underline the painterly effect of the depiction. I even think that Rembrandt liked his books rather disbound than bound, because they make a far better effect thus. The portrait of the preacher Anslow, again a preacher, clearly shows this. To my knowledge, the richly gilt bindings of Dutch masters of the last 35 years of the century, like the famous Amsterdam master bookbinder Albert Magnus, have never been depicted in contemporary paintings. If you find one, please tell. But also these can tell us something about the person who had made these bindings. Twenty years ago, I bought a book by Jacob Katz, a famous Dutch poem, which you won't know. And the book is called, translated, The Beginning, Middle and End of the World as Enclosed in the Marriage Ring. In a luxurious red Morocco binding. 
On the strength of the tools used, as described by Miriam Foote in her book on the Davis collection, this binding must be ascribed to the said Magnus, who lived from 1642 to 1689. The binding has an almost totally decorative tooling on the covers with open crowns in the corners and one in the center as well, and a larger crown than in the center, under which we find the letters GP and AEVU on the front cover, and NO M DCLXX1X on the back cover, which of course is 1679. The meaning of all that wasn't quite clear to me when I bought the binding. Yet the edges seemed to tell me something. They are gothered and painted like often with Magnus and show symbols relating to spiritual and physical love like Phoenix Amor shooting his arrows, two hands connected by a locked chain, and two doves. And even if you turn your head round, you may see a hen and the rooster in the act of producing eggs. It's peculiar, this confrontation of these two things, which you will find more often in our country at that time, in this type of book. Book and edge can re to, uh, refer to a marriage, therefore. A certain GP could thus have married a certain AEVU in 1679. While reading Herman de La Fontaine de Verweij's leading article on Magnus, beautiful article, in, to be read even in English in Querendo, it occurred to me that the pretty uncommon initial VU could stand for Van Eugelen, pronounced in Dutch. I wouldn't know actually how you would pronounce it. For Verbe showed the Amsterdam merchant Paolo van Eugelen, born 1641 or 1642 and died 1702, to have had financial dealings with the binder. An investigation in Amsterdam civic archives was successful. One Giles Pelgrim was betrothed to Anne Elizabeth van Eugelen on June 1st, 1679. Book and binding clearly were a gift to them and possibly from the bride's uncle, Paolo van Eugelen. One rarely has this luck, of course. After van Eugelen's death, an auction of his splendid collection of art and books was held in 1703 by Hendrik Wettstein, famous publisher, whose wife was a sister of Van Eugelen's son-in-law. An introduction to the auction catalogue, so we know that Wettstein knew him pretty well, uh, gives a portrait of the bibliophile and his collection. It appears that the collector had pronounced ideas about how his books had to be bound, and that is interesting. All folios, I quote, translated of course, with the exception of some ten, and it's a huge collection, and all quartos, some 70 accepted, so in both cases almost nothing, are neatly bound in horn, by which they meant parchment, nicely gilt on the spine and the covers, and all so similar that one may rightly state that the like of it has never been seen in our country. All books were thus bound according to Van Eugelen's instructions. He must have had a permanent binder to do so. It would not be surprising, Herman de la Fontaine of Way stated in his said article, if this had been Albert Magnus. Well, that was the state of affairs till a short time ago. But I had the feeling that some gold-tooled parchment bindings in our collection with a crown on the second frame of the covers, you do remember the crown on this binding, exactly the one of that binding, could be the ones Verweij was speculating about. For, with the exception of the prize bindings, the many prize bindings made in our country, and atlas bindings, which you may know around, for instance, the famous Blau Atlas, 
gold tooling of parchment was not at all common in our country at that time. And these bindings, large formats from quarto to broadsheet, had to be ascribed to Magnus on strength of the tools used, again following William's research. A comparison had to be made of the titles of the books in our bindings with the crown, uh, the bindings with the crown and those in Van Echelen's auction catalogue, which is available luckily on microfiche. The catalogue doesn't lend itself very well for this, because many a title is incomplete or contains a mistake. Moreover, the cataloger even states that in each division, according to subject he brought together, not only the books belonging to the subject, but also those he found appropriate to it, were catalogued there, or those written by the same authors, and not always those that belong in a certain division. And contrary to what was normal at that time, the division by format was not strictly observed. So if one doesn't find a certain title in the catalogue, this doesn't necessarily mean that it is not there. Nevertheless, I found the titles of eight books among the 13 in crown bindings we possess, which is a good, though not perfect, score. I was on the right track. Van Uchelen had, no, uh, had children, so one might expect not all his books to have been sold after his death, and some to have left his collection before he died. Yet I found the percentage of yes a little too low for certainty. Rereading then the foreword to the catalogue, something overlooked before showed up. After having spoken, spoken about the quarto and folio bindings, the cataloger mentions that only a few of those in octavo have raised cords and gilding, and that every book, small or large, has the title printed on the spine. Apparently, Van Uchelen, Van Uchelen's larger binding had raised cords, because he tells that the, uh, the, the octavos sometimes have raised cords. And the titles were tooled, or printed, and not written as was normal at the time. Three bindings with crowns could be discarded, for they had a flat spine or a written title. And those were not found in the catalogue. So, ten remained. I will show you one of them. This has been titled in suit or black ink, which indeed is very, very rare, at least in our country. But I haven't seen it elsewhere up till now as well. So you see the titles are tooled, and that was a feature I didn't realize at first. And it's absolutely unique. The match with Van Echelen's catalogue is the most perfect one now one could ever expect. Especially when the wide variety of books is taken into account. So I'm certain that, as can be, that these books come from his collection. So you see that only the binding brings me to the collector, whereas there is no annotation, no ex libris or whatever that could tell it. Of these books, there are genealogical works, there are books on other subjects, a, a print work on the burial, burial of Archduke Albert of Austria in Brussels, Aesop's fables, the Constronentuel about a contest of rhetoricians in Haarlem, a legal work in German, and Fossius Observationum Liber, a miscellaneous work of 1685. There is yet another example of an owner who can be identified by his bindings. And I'm not speaking now about a group of binding on which Miriam Foote is working, and Miriam is working on it because it is late Magnus-like, and I'm working on it because it's early 18th century Dutch, and we exchange information about that, and we have lots of ideas, but we are not certain yet. I mean an another group. And you must realize I'm not speaking about arms and ciphers, which far more obvious point to certain possessor. And this goes together with a nice romantic story, which shows that one can have luck, and how data from different sources can give insight into book collecting in the 18th century in Holland. The Royal Library, where I work, 
possesses some 50 bindings with a lion in the center of the covers in a laurel wreath or a composition of decorative tools which were made by the same anonymous Hague binder, all. This binder, I have bindery, I have given the nickname First Stadtholder Bindery. Some 15 more are to be found in other collections around the world. I have a family of binders in mind who would perfectly fit the production of this shop, but so far I lack proof and I won't mention that because we concentrate on the owner now. Most of the lion bindings are in sprinkled calf and look very similar. They cannot easily be dated on basis of the contents, for they are all older books from the 16th and 17th century, but they must stem from the beginning of the earliest period of the binary from, let's say, Kirka 7 and 7040, whereas a small group of bindings, around six different works, is in red Morocco. I show you the most gorgeous one of the group. You see, it's far larger, so the line becomes very small here in its laurel wreath. And you will easily detect that it is one of the most important binders that has lived in Holland in the 18th century. Four Morocco bindings were made between 1734 and 1749 at the utmost. And two of these bindings with telltale differences when compared to, the, compared to the other ones must stem from the end of the 50s. And these were, were not taken into account in my search because they obviously were different from the others. When I wrote my book on Hague book bindings of the 18th century in 1976, I already felt that all or most of the line bindings must have been made for one collector. But I had no idea who that could be. The lion is to be found in the coats of arms of several provinces of the Dutch Republic, like Holland. But these books certainly didn't come from their official libraries, because I know where those went, to our library by an other source. The owner might have been someone with lion, lions, or of lion in his name, like myself. But that is looking for the needle in a haystack, since such names are popular in my country. I had to be content then that I simply didn't know. But who in the end can take no for an answer? Certainly not me. Most of the line bindings entered our collection en bloc in 1807 as part of the collection of the Leiden book lover Joost Romswinkel. I will not deal with him nor his collection, but concentrate on an annotation he used to make on one of the fly leaves at the end of his books near the fold. This and that. This annotation is to be found in the small line bindings show the small line binding I just showed, the first one in the row. They contain some ciphers and some letters, and usually a number in a circle, but often are partly or totally erased and then cannot be, read, cannot be read or only with great difficulty. Formerly, we thought that the number in the circle was supposed to represent the amount of money Romswinkel originally paid for the book in question in pennies, and we would have to divide it by 20 in order to arrive at guilders. But this appeared not to be true, and the rest of the ciphers and uh, letters we thought to be just fancy. Yet some of them seem to show a name, something like 89, followed by something like G-A-I-L-L, -L, or sometimes more looking like T-T. Which made me think, couldn't 89 stand for 1789? And couldn't G-A-I-L, or L-L, stand for Gaillard. Then it could stand for the famous Dutch book dealer Gaillard. I was in luck. We appeared to possess one catalogue of 1789, only one. But this was a catalogue by the Hague book dealer Johannes Gaillard, 
of November 23 to 28. And it was precisely the catalogue needed. The titles of the books with the annotation G-A-I-L, or now we can say Gaillard 89, actually appear there under the numbers that often figured above this G-A-I-L 89. Right here. So in the catalogue 742 is this book. Beautiful. It isn't that beautiful always. Unluckily. But, and one is very happy in the Washington, I'm there. But of course, there is a time gap between 89 and Kirk 30. Well, anyway, Romswinkel must have bought most of his lion books at this sale. I should like to know who sold his books there. The catalogue mentions the unfinished name Krev, C-R-E-V as the owner, and some asterisks coming afterwards. Obviously, Gaillard wanted us to think that his client was the famous book collector Peter Anthony Bolognaro Grevena. But this couldn't be true but we, before we know his catalogues and are different. So my research stopped there for the time being. Sometime later, I was in Brussels Royal Library, together with my friend Ellie Cox, then still keeper of special collections. All of a sudden, I saw there lying on the shelves ten large identical red Morocco volumes, which I, on the spine, immediately recognized as belonging to the first Stadtholder binary. So we took them out. They contain works by Gerard van Loon, a famous Dutch writer, three of his uh, history books, written 1734, 1732, and 1723-31 all printed on large paper of a superb quality, very large paper. In this time, Van Loon was a famous connoisseur of coins and medals, and he wrote history in coins and medals, and the books deal with the subject then. These volumes have a line in the laurel wreath on the center of the covers, and so belong to my line group. I was excited. Could these bindings contain a solution to the origin of the line bindings? Bart Optebeek, Ellie's successor, told me that the set was mentioned in a report of 1817 to William I, then King of Holland and Belgium. For a short time, these countries were married. Very unhappy marriage. <laughs> by Pierre Lomans. Lomans had visited the Paris National Library in order to make out what books looted by French soldiers from the libraries in the Low Countries in Napoleonic times were still to be found there. He found almost nothing. French are wise. <laughs> Next to an Ovid edition of Collard Mansion, he only found our copy of Gerard van Loon's work described, and I translate from the French, as Atlantic format bound in red Morocco, gilt on ancient covers. This is the copy the author donated to the University Library of Louvain as a mark of gratitude towards the university where he had studied. Obviously, the set was not returned to Louvain, but remained in Brussels, and that puzzled me a little, which is just as well, for otherwise it would have two real great chances of this being destroyed by fire in World Wars I and II. Although I knew that almost nothing of the old Louvain library thus is preserved, I immediately sent an email to my friend Chris Coppens there, asking if he knew anything about it. His answer was surprising. He wondered whether I was clairvoyant, because he had a letter of 7052 about exactly this matter on his desk, <laughs> and was wondering what to do with it. In this letter, and there comes the proof, Van Loon addressed Professor Riga of Louvain University about his wish to donate his own copies of his most important work to the alma mater where he had studied 50 years ago, and in what manner he wanted to send them to Louvain. That was not an easy affair at that time. A transcription of a second letter by Van Loon was found later on in an old bio uh, bibliography, uh, biography of him, but doesn't present extra material for our subject. Since the set of line bindings in Brussels had belonged to Van Loon himself, the logical supposition 
would be that the others would come from his collection as well. There are other reasons besides. For instance, many of the books in the lion bindings have extra engravings added to them, among which proofs of the same some of the prints in Van Loon's old Dutch history uh, medals. These are proofs. The proofs of this slide are to be found again in the small binding I showed first. Who else could have proofs at his disposal except the printmaker, the, pub the printmaker, the publisher and the author of whom the author, of course, is the only logical one to have possessed these books. They deal almost exclusively with the history and geography of Holland, in a strict sense, the subject of Van Loon, and the uh, Netherlands in a broader one, and after that also the world. Gerard van Loon, born in 1683, studied indeed law in Louvain between 1700 and 1702, and then continued his studies in Leiden. But, as a Catholic, we had freedom of religion, but were not that free. He could not occupy official positions in the Republic, and devoted himself to his love, the history of the Netherlands in coins and medals, exactly the, the, the subject of the works mentioned. To this end, he built up an extensive book collection. In the beginning, his writings were successful, but after having published Poor He, an old rhyme chronicle in 1745, which appeared to be a forgery, even at that time, he was accused of having Catholic viewpoints and ended his historical studies in order to concentrate on religion. In one of his biographies, there is a vague mention of a sale of his books at that time, but I've not been able to substantiate that. He gave his own co uh, copies of his own work, then beautifully bound to the University of Louvain, in 1752. He also intended to give his manuscript, we know that from these letters, to Leiden University, but that didn't happen. He died in 1758 without offspring, and his unmarried sister inherited everything. His library was auctioned in 1759. The catalogue, again, is preserved. It has far fewer mistakes and misplacings than Van Uggelen's, but a disadvantage is that especially small books, of which we have many in line bindings, are often brought together in lots and not described separately. And that is a disadvantage to my research. Unfortunately, not many books in lying bindings can be found in Van Loon's catalogue. When doubtful pieces are discarded, out of the 60 that remain, only 16 can be found, which is 70, uh, 27%. It is more than you would usually find when you try to trace the books of one collection in the catalogue of another one. Believe me, I've done that, but far less than desirable. This makes my promising identification of the line bindings with Van Loon far less certain than desirable, but doesn't make it untrue. As has been indicated, Van Loon had a generous nature, was unmarried, and had no offspring. He may have given a large part of historical collection away when he stopped his studies in the field and concentrated totally on religion. Several books on coins and medals, for example, which he must have had, do not figure in the catalogue. Moreover, there is this vague story about some sort of sale in the 40s or early 50s. We may perhaps never know, yet I believe that it was Van Loon who had the lion bindings made, or at least a large part of them. Back to painting. Miriam Foot, who gives her lessons here already for a very long time and is for a longer time a good friend of mine, in her history of bookbinding as a mirror of society, a book you read with red ears in one evening and enjoy enormously, painted there with broad brushstrokes and vivid colors, the use the study of bindings can have for that of the book of collecting and culture. In this lecture, I've tried to detail several points she touched upon while using examples from my own experience. I strongly believe the time to be over that we can confine ourselves to the study 
of the most beautiful bindings only, while trying to trace their binders. Like Anthony Hobson and Miriam, I find that the cultural surroundings in which they came into existence is important. The study of bindings can have an important role for the study of books and especially of former owners. Bindings form an integral part of the bookmaking process and reflect the ideas and wishes of the first owners and the skills of their makers. With my few examples, I hope to have shown this. Thank you.